This is Leewood Online, a ministry of Leewood Baptist Church, located in the Kansas City area. For more information about us, visit us online at www.leewoodbaptist.com. Good morning. Today we will have uh, two scripture readings. My name is Rob Sykes, and uh, the first scripture reading is found in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, and it's found on uh, page 809 in the Pew Bible. And the second passage is found in 1 John chapter 1, chapter 1, verse 5, through chapter 2, verse 6, and it's found on Pew Bible page 1021. The first scripture reading Matthew 4:17 From that time Jesus began to preach saying Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand The second scripture reading 1 John chapter 1 verse 5 through chapter 2 verse 6 This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Hey, let me um, just give a quick introduction and I'll pray for us again and then we'll, we'll jump in. I have two goals this morning. One is to keep us in our series in the book of Matthew where we've been journeying through uh, the teachings of Jesus and starting to actually hear his voice in this text and his summary sentence of a message is to repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So I want to just keep us there for a little bit and unpack that and really I want to unpack the question why do we keep repenting as Christians if God has already forgiven us? 
Christians believe that Christ died once for all for sin. There was one atoning sacrifice. He's not re-crucified every time we blow it. You don't lose your salvation when you sin. And so if we're already forgiven, then why do we repent? Or is this just a call to people to believe for the first time? And then what do we do with the other commands in Scripture to, to keep repenting or asking for forgiveness? So I just want to answer that question. And the second goal I have is to help us prepare for this season coming into Easter. Uh, we have different backgrounds and different traditions. And um, as much as I love Sunday morning and I love Sunday morning, I think what we do in this room really matters. I think lives are transformed and changed in a moment on Sunday mornings. Many of you could point to moments where you met Jesus and your sins were forgiven and God came into your life on a Sunday morning much like today. And I think the songs that we sing over time, they shape us and the prayers that we, that we pray, they actually form our hearts. So I think what we do in this room really matters. And yet it's just an hour and 15 minutes of your week. You will spend two or three times as much time even today on Netflix or watching the news or scrolling through Instagram or even watching TikTok. You'll, you'll be incorporating so many other things, even just in one day, than you get in the whole week that we have in church. And so for a season like Lent to be helpful for us as a church is to recognize that we need some, some focus. We need some time to declutter our hearts. We need a chance to, to actually ask God to work in us in a repeated way outside of this room. And so I want to set us up well for the next 40 days. And I realize our church has lots of different traditions. I don't think we've had a real strong tradition of preparing for Easter in a formal way. I think all of us have kind of in our own families and our own traditions have done that. We've celebrated Good Friday in the past, but we haven't really done an Ash Wednesday service. And so this week, as I was just praying for us, I thought, right, let me just take some time to get us ready. So I think these two things, these two goals of repentance from the book of Matthew and then answering this question, why keep repenting from First John, fits into that goal of preparing us for, for Lent because it is a season of continual repentance and, and asking God to meet us and denying ourselves certain things to help our hearts actually focus. And so if we're not careful, we'll maybe miss an opportunity. And I don't want to put pressure on us. Like it's not one opportunity, right? We have, Lord willing, decades to walk with him. And I want to set a culture in our church for the long haul where we're not dependent on certain moments or a few, a few seasons or one sermon or one event or one class or, or one conversation. But God works in our lives over the long haul. So in some sense, there's no pressure. And we just have a beautiful opportunity in front of us. And so um, I needed some time to just remember and remind myself of what's going on in a season of repentance like Lent. So I wanted to kind of bring us all into that. So th those are my goals. And again, I think even as we think about what it means to gather in this room to give us a bigger vision of, hey, God is with you in your homes. He's with you in your car. He's with you at work. He's with you when you're changing diapers. He's with you when you feel alone. So he's forming you in this room, but he's also forming your heart wherever you are. That's really good news, actually. And, and if we can dial into what he wants to do in our heart, I think he will continue to grow and change us. So, so those are my, my two goals. Let me just pray for us, and then uh, we'll jump into... Matthew 4, just for a moment, and then we'll spend the rest of our time in 1 John. So let me, let me just pray. Jesus, thank you for what, what we've just said that's true, that because you died on a cross, you made a way for us to be in relationship with you. And you said you weren't going to leave us alone, even though you went back to the Father in your ascension. You sent the Holy Spirit. And the scriptures say that that means you're like inside of us. You're near us. And that's, that's mysterious for sure, but at least speaks of your closeness. 
And so Jesus said you would be our counselor, Holy Spirit. You would teach us what's true. You would comfort us. You would rebuke us. You would correct us. You would, you would do lots of things in our heart that we desperately need you to do to form us in the image of Christ. So Holy Spirit, we invite you to come and have your way. And, and you don't need our permission for sure, um, but we want to open ourselves up and ask that you would speak to us. And so would you make your word make sense to us and would you tune our hearts to your heart? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, hey, start with me in Matthew chapter 4. It's on page 809. I just want to make reference to this one sermon in a sentence where Jesus summarizes his message that we're going to see throughout the book of Matthew, which is this call to repent. And I think we should talk about, for clarity's sake, capital R repentance and lowercase r repentance. If you're not a follower of Jesus, a lot of what I'm going to talk about today is actually aimed at Christians talking about renewal and relationship and kind of a, a restoring of communion through repentance. But if you don't yet know God and haven't yet trusted in Christ, uh, the first step for you is to actually trust Jesus for your salvation. The Bible says that we are under the wrath of God because of our sin, which is a really heavy idea, a really heavy concept. You feel the weight of that, but the scriptures say you're actually born as God's enemy and you need God to do something for you so you could be saved. And what he did was die on a cross to pay the penalty for all of your sin. And the way the Bible talks is that you repent, you turn away from the old life, and you believe you turn towards him. So it's in repenting and in believing that we're saved. And so that's kind of capital R repenting. And that's a call to those of you who don't know Jesus. Uh, Jesus doesn't just add new techniques or ideas to your life. He doesn't make your life better through moral teaching. He actually came to die in your place, and you get an opportunity by his mercy to trust in him. So I want to be really careful. Like, that's a capital R repentance. The rest of what I'm going to talk about kind of doesn't matter if you haven't yet first trusted Christ to be the atonement for your sin. So Jesus is preaching to unbelievers for sure, but he's also preaching to people who would, would carry on this message after the time that he was on the earth to help them kind of see this lifestyle of repentance. And so there's a, a lowercase r repentance. And so Jesus just says, repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And we camped out here for quite a bit last week. The only thing I want you to see from this passage is the way he uses right above this in verse 16, these ideas of light and darkness to speak of relationship with God as walking in the light and, and being away from God as being in darkness. Because you heard those themes in 1 John. So now, now flip over with me to 1 John. It's on page 1021. Let's come to terms with something as well as we get started. You and I have a habit, we could say. We have a pattern. We have a reflex. We have an impulse to make everything about us. And that means when it comes to most things, you think in utilitarian ways of what does this thing, this person, this situation, what does it do for me? So what does my job do for me? What does a relationship do for me? How does this person make me feel? We, we just kind of center everything around ourselves. And so we have a, a very utilitarian kind of self-focused view of almost everything. Right? Even God, I think, we're asking, how does God make my life better? How does he accentuate my life? Not how do I orbit my life around, around him? So we put ourselves at the center and we make everybody else useful to us. And then when they're no longer useful or the job's no longer useful or the relationship's no longer useful, then we're tempted to disregard to set aside. We actually consume people, and then when they're no longer giving us what we think we need, we replace them or we marginalize them, right? We consume, and then we discard when we think of everything in utilitarian terms. So, so just think for a moment like of art, 
right? The reason why art's such a struggle in schools is because you can't put like a price tag on how helpful it is, right? And so everybody knows it's good for your brain, all those things, but it's not a, a money maker. And so we tend to marginalize things like beauty because we can't see the immediate benefit, at least us non-artists, right? And if you think about relationships, right? You think about marriage just being the solution to singleness, well, if that's your approach to marriage and then that person, you put tons of pressure on them to complete you and that often ends up in bankruptcy. Or think about just school kids. Like if the goal is just to get good grades and not learn, what you think the goal is shapes how you actually engage it, right? Or if you think about uh, your job or you think about other relationships, if it's just to give you something, then when it stops doing that, you're tempted to, to set it aside. So, so we have a utilitarian beginning and then what we think the purpose of something is shapes how we engage it. So, so if just passing the class, if that's the only goal, not learning the material, you study quite a bit different. You can actually cram in and you can do the study guide and it doesn't really matter if you know this a year from now, you just want to know this for Tuesday afternoon at 1.30. You remember those days, adults and kids, you're right in the middle of that, right? You study for what you think you need. It's what you think the purpose of this is. Okay, so let me ask you then, what is the purpose of repentance? What's the usefulness of asking for forgiveness? If you put yourself at the center, what's the point? Or how does it benefit you? And I wonder if we have this utilitarian view of repentance and we keep ourselves at the center, it actually can put us in a confusing place when it comes to repentance. Right? Is it just about making me feel better? Is it about me just feeling like, like I'm a good person? Is it about me removing my own guilt? Or is there something deeper going on that I need that actually has everything to do with who God is? Here, here's my, my big idea. Right? Repentance is a relational dynamic by where communion is restored, not love earned. So, so it's not so much that you're getting something in, in repentance that you didn't have before. You're renewing your relationship that's been fractured as you have turned away from God. Right? It's a relational dynamic for the follower of Jesus, not a legal dynamic. It's not that you have fallen out of grace and you got to work your way back in and repentance is the way to do that. It's actually a way for you to keep your heart warm to the things of God. Repentance for the Christian is a relational dynamic where, where communion is restored, not love earned for the follower of Jesus. And so I want to walk through this passage in 1 John for a moment just to kind of show you that. I think we've struggled with what repentance is. And to be honest with you, we've spent several weeks here. Maybe you're like, seriously, man, we're talking about repentance again. That's all this dude ever talks about. Well, I actually struggled this week with that. And so I brought it to our pastors and I said, hey, I think we should slow down one more time. But like we've talked about repentance almost every single week. And so we actually prayed as a staff. And I just say, hey, would you just pray for me the next couple of days? I got to decide, do we camp out here or do we move on to the next section? And if you're following in our Bible reading plan, we hit Acts 3. It's a little commercial for your Bible reading plan, by the way. We hit Acts 3 uh, this week. And there's a fascinating text in there in the middle of chapter 3, verse 19, where, where the preacher is preaching a message. And he says this, repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out and that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. So he says, repent, so your sins are blotted out, no doubt, it's about forgiveness, but so that there's a refreshing that happens in the presence of the Lord. And so when I read that, I thought, oh man, we have to sit there just a little bit longer as a community because many of you don't repent regularly because you've trusted in Jesus, you know your sins are forgiven, and now in a utilitarian way, you're just going to live your life any way you want. 
And, and where God is convenient, where reading the Bible is helpful, where it makes you feel good about yourself, you'll do that. If you have a real big blowout and you feel tons of shame, you'll use repentance as a way to kind of feel better about yourself. But as far as renewal and times of refreshing in the presence of the Lord, I think many of us are missing out on a major dynamic of what Christ came to do and purchase for us. Because we don't see repentance as communion restoration. We see it simply in legal terms of acquittal. And if we've already been forgiven, then, then what's the point? So with that, I actually just felt like, man, look, can we just stay in this space as we're trying to build a culture that communes with God and asks for God to speak to us? So, so here's the question again. Why do you repent if you're already forgiven? If Christ already died, what's the point of saying that you're sorry he's already paid for and the answer is that it restores communion and I think what happens in first John is super instructive for us so what I want to do is just walk through the passage kind of just go right through it and then I want to circle back and drop these five R's for you to give you some ways to hold on to some things this week so here we go in verse five of chapter one in first John he says this he says this is the message that we've heard this is what we've been talking about and him we proclaim that God is light okay He starts the message not about you, but about God. That's super instructive. Hey, here's the whole point of this thing. Let's start with God. And God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. A conversation about repentance doesn't start with you and how you feel. It starts with who God is, his purity and his holiness. Because you have a couple of options, right? There's an irreligious response to God that just discards him and says, I don't care. I'm going to be my own God. I'm going to save myself. I'm going to work hard enough and be a good person. You have an irreligious response. Or you can have an overly religious response where you try to earn from God. And so maybe you use repentance as a way to kind of earn his favor. And it's through Hail Marys. And it's through feeling really bad. And if you say it a whole bunch of times, then actually he'll, he'll atone for you, right? So you have a, a religious response that thinks you're earning something from God. And then there's a third response that's a gospel response that begins with who God is and what he's done and responds to that. That says that God is light and in him is no darkness and in that purity he sent his son into the world to die in my place. I'm relating to him from that spot. So when you see he starts with God, this is the message. It all begins with God. Just recognize you've got some options. Are you using God for your own betterment? Are you discarding him as irrelevant or are you trusting him in the good news of the gospel and letting that shape your life? What John's going to walk through is that third response of a gospel response. How do you start with who God is and then from there move towards a lifestyle of repentance, right? So this is God in him. There's no darkness at all. Verse six. And if we say that we have fellowship with him, This is about relational communion, right? If we started with God's a Trinitarian God, he eternally exists as a relationship, then the goal is not simple forgiveness. That forgiveness is in service of a relationship. You experience this with humans all the time. When you're at odds with somebody and you feel that coldness, the reason why you ask their forgiveness is not because they could atone for you. It's to restore that closeness, So they would not just give you their back anymore, but turn and give you their face. So they don't lay in bed kind of distant from you, right? You're one foot apart, but you're so far apart. So you ask them to forgive you because the communion or the fellowship has been broken. So we said that's our goal here, right? God is light and in him there's no darkness. If we say that we have fellowship with him, that's our goal. While we walk in darkness, we lie. 
If you say you're communing with God, but you pursue the things that are opposed to God and you don't practice the truth, he says you're a liar. So, so this darkness motif. And then verse 7, but instead if we walk in the light, right? So these are habitual habits. It's not that I sinned one time. It's I'm pursuing a life of darkness, right? In verse 8, he's going to say hey, all of us have sinned. So he's talking about a habit of darkness. If we say we know God while we just serve ourselves and pursue the kingdom of this world, then, then we're a liar, he says. But instead, if we walk in the light, in verse 7, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So the one option is darkness. The other one is light. And repentance, in a lot of ways, turns the light on in your life. It's how you step out of darkness into light to actually pursue God and have the light of Christ shine upon you. And it's a habitual thing. It's in the present tense, right? To continue to walk in the light. But if we walk in the light, verse 7, as he's in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin, right? It's his sacrifice on the cross that makes it possible for us to be right with God. And he goes on, but if we say we have no sin, if we say we're fine, we're purified, we're clean, we're good, then we deceive ourselves. And we, we live in this cloud that sin throws over us where we think we're fine, not just legally because of atonement, but relationally. Again, a utilitarian view, right? You actually let yourself use people and call that love. And so he's saying, I, I, I don't want to deceive ourselves. I don't want you to be deceived, right? If you say you have no sin, you deceive yourself. And the truth is not in us because God says, actually, you're going to struggle with sin your whole life. But there's permission to be honest and to repent because this testimony of Scripture is that we're going to continue to struggle until the day of Christ Jesus. Philippians 1.6 says, He who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it, which means it's not complete yet. He says, complete it until the day of Christ Jesus comes. That you are progressively going to be more and more holy. So there always will be places in your life where there is sin. So if we say we don't have sin, we're deceiving ourselves. And the truth that God has spoken over us about our sin is not in us. And there's a verse you know, verse 9. But if we confess our sins... If we bring those into the light, which is what walking in the light is, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and he's just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Simply placing our faith in Christ and confessing our sins brings cleansing. But he's talking to Christians, right? Not just that capital R repentance, that lowercase r repentance. If we continue to confess our sins, he's continually faithful and continually just to continually cleanse us from our unrighteousness in a relational way that restores that relational dynamic, that communion, that fellowship that he started talking about. He says in verse 10, and if we say that we haven't sinned, if we say we're fine, we don't need to confess anything, then we make God out to be a liar. And his word is not in us, again, because God says you're going to continue to need a Savior. You're going to continue to struggle. And his word says to us, God's made provision through repentance and forgiveness to have this relationship restored. Whew, that's a ton. Why repent? Because God says we need to. Because we continue to struggle with sin even though we know Christ. And our fellowship is broken when we say we don't have sin. So we turn to him so that that is restored. Now look with me in chapter 2. He says, my little children... My voice is loud, and I'm trying to speak to you earnestly. He speaks like a father, tenderly to followers of Jesus. 
Hey, I'm telling you all this, he says. I'm writing this to you, my little children, so that you wouldn't sin. What is the this? What he just said. I'm telling you that you have sin. I'm telling you that Christ has made atonement for your sin. I'm telling you that you shouldn't deny that you have sin. I'm telling you that Christ died to set you free. I'm telling you that God cleanses you when you forgive. I'm telling you all that so that you don't sin. He preaches the gospel to them about the good news of what Christ has done so that they don't continue to walk in darkness. He shines the light of Christ's love on them so that they don't continue to sin. And then he says, but if anyone does sin, I love it. Hey, I'm telling you this so you don't sin. If you take a religious view, you go, cool, you heard that? Now never sin again. And he says, but when you sin, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, who is the righteous one, right back into the gospel. So you can see this cycle here. He starts with the fellowship of God, our relationship with God, and says, hey, there's a barrier to that in the darkness that you keep walking in. Stop doing that. Turn towards him. Remember that he's already forgiven you. He's cleansed you. And that actually has a motivating factor for you to actually bring your heart to him so that you won't sin. And then when you sin, remember, though you don't have to walk in darkness, he's already forgiven you. He's loved you already. He cleanses you when you confess. And this cycle keeps going. It's a cycle of repentance. And he says this Jesus is the righteous one. He is the propitiation, verse 2, chapter 2, of our sins, which means he bore our wrath, and not only ours, but also for the sin of the whole world. So he preaches the gospel. Did you catch all that? Hey, I'm telling you about forgiveness so that you don't sin, because so many times we sin because we don't trust God actually loves us, and we have to take matters into our own hands. And he says, no, actually God does love you. So much so he sent his son to die in your place. He proved that he loved you and that you're not alone, that God hasn't abandoned you. He's not holding out on you. You can actually give him your whole heart. He proved that on the cross. I'm telling you that so that you push away from the allure of sin that says to you, you can't trust God. You should take matters into your own hands. There's something you need you don't have that will satisfy. Can you see that? He roots a strong understanding of the gospel so that we actually turn away from sin. Repentance isn't rubbing our nose in shame. It's about liberation and freedom. I've said multiple times from this pulpit. And what he's doing here is saying, hey, here's your invitation out of the darkness that is killing you into the light. And it's an invitation to remember what Christ has done. And then he just says, hey, and this actually matters. This actually changes you away with the idea of saying sorry, but not really meaning it, of, of saying, I'll go ahead and do this and I'll ask for forgiveness later. You know how that doesn't work relationally, right? When someone continues to say they're sorry and they turn right around and do it again, you go, eh, I don't know if you're actually sorry. That's what he's saying. So this actually changes us in verse three of chapter two. And, and by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments, We know that this is actually real and that we're following after God if our hearts are drawn to his word and we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but doesn't keep his commandments is a liar. This is the one who walks in darkness. It's the same as chapter 1, verse 6. If you say you're fine and you're in darkness, you're a liar. Those who say they keep the commandments, but they don't, they're they're liars. And the truth is not in them, he says. Verse 5, but whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides, that's that fellowship word, in him we ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. He's saying this repentance actually does begin to change us. Not perfectly. Walking in the light is not sinlessness. It's a habit of repentance, right? Because the word, to walk in the truth of the word is to repent when we blow it. It's not to hide or cultivate the darkness, but to step into 
the light. Hey, this is one of my favorite passages. Grammatically, maybe it's a little bit challenging, but what you see in there is a beautiful invitation towards honesty and freedom that's rooted in the work of Christ that lets you not deny the darkness in your heart, but also move away from it. It's more than just indulge the darkness, right? Yeah, I'm a sinner. That's why Christ died for me. I'm going to live into that. He says, no, 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 don't, don't do that. That actually will kill you. Instead, turn away from that and walk into the light. And the way you do that is not by trying harder and pledging to do better. It's by trusting what Christ has done for you. It actually transforms and changes you, right? Little children, I'm telling you this whole thing so that you would step away from darkness, right? So let's get out of our minds that sin is just this list of vices. Sin is actually a disposition of your heart in rebellion to God. And hearing the good news of what Christ has done is what erodes that resistance to his love so that you return to him and are restored and the communion is reestablished, right? Repentance is a relational dynamic by which communion is restored, not love being earned, right? It's about you being close again. It's about you not hiding in shame. It's about you not sitting in the darkness, hurting yourself. It's about you running into the light. So why do we keep repenting? It's not to add to the atonement that Christ has already done, right? It's already established. It's, he's, he just roots it in this big old word propitiation, right? He's already done it. So we're not adding anything through our repentance. It's not a work that we do. It's a reminder of what God has already done. So why repent? Because it restores this communion and this fellowship. So let me give you five R's just quickly. Let me just try to summarize all of this with some hooks so you can hold on to it this week. Because as we come into Lent, I would love for you to have a posture of repentance. And I don't mean by that beat yourself up and feel terrible about yourself. I don't mean pay God back by doing a whole bunch of Hail Marys and saying the right prayers and, and being mean to yourself so that God would love you, right? We, remember that moment like on the playground where you do something unkind to somebody, they begin to cry and they're going to go tell and you say, oh, do that thing to me and then we'll be even. Or maybe worse than that when you've sinned against your brother or sister as a kid and your parents make you apologize, but everybody knows you're not actually sorry. We actually train our children to be liars, in that moment. It's a good thing. Parents keep doing it. It's a habit. Get them to do that. But I think that sticks in your soul in some ways where you think just saying sorry is fine. Or if I can pay you back, then we're fine. That's very different than a gospel response, right? So, so why repent after you are a Christian? Here's the first R, because it restores fellowship with God. Not makes him love you again, but it restores that relational dynamic, right? That, that back towards you where you felt cold. It actually turns his face towards you. It's this time of refreshing, Acts 3. Hebrews says it's unburdening ourselves of all that hinders us. It's remembering who God is and what he's done for us, right? So it restores this fellowship. And so at this point, you're going like, hey, dude, this is a terrible Valentine's Day message. This is like the worst Valentine's message in the history of Valentine's Day messages. Unless, can I make like a weird tie? Unless actually having relationships restored is the most romantic thing you can do. I mean, you know what it's like after you've like made up and you've apologized, that feeling of intimacy that's restored. That's actually what's going on in repentance with God. So boom, it's actually an amazing Valentine's Day message. You're very welcome for that. I'm totally culturally relevant and watch the calendar for my sermon messages. Just kidding. But in that space, like it does restore 
fellowship, that's why it matters, right? This relational God, this triune relational God calls us to himself. And repentance is the act that we do of going into the darkness and turning back towards him. It's about our communion with him. Second R, it reveals the severity of our sin. Simply repenting calls a spade a spade and says, this isn't a malady, it's not a hang-up, it's not a dysfunction. This is sin. It's, It's a reflection of my heart that's not trusting God. And to repent and say, God, I've sinned against you, is to call the thing you're struggling with actually sinful. It reveals the severity of that. It's not just a place where you're trying to grow and get better. It actually is a rebellious heart, right? To call it actual darkness. Because what that does is actually it pulls the mask off of the temptation that the evil one puts on it to deceive you into thinking. If you just had this thing, then you'd be fine, right? This is our fishing lure illustration from a couple of weeks ago. This is Satan tempting Jesus in the desert with bread and with this idea of actually getting on a, on a temple and throwing himself down and proving God's love. It's you hearing some half-truth about who you are, who God is, or what you need. And to call it sin reveals the severity of it so that you stop. It takes the power out of it a little bit. It actually removes the allure just a little bit to call this thing death and darkness. Not just escaping because I'm stressed. Hey man, COVID has been horrible for so many of us. You're not sinful or a bad person because you felt tempted or exhausted or overwhelmed or felt the need to escape. The sin comes in when we go to illegitimate needs for that escape. When we try to satisfy the hunger in ways that aren't centered around God but around something else. And let's give each other tons of grace, but grace actually transforms and changes us. It reveals the severity of sin when we stop and repent and call it darkness. There's a posture of my heart that says, God, you are light, and in you is no darkness. And this thing that I've done, this thing I've thought, this thing I've participated in, this thing I've longed for, this thing I've fantasized about, this thing that I've kind of ruminated on over and over again, that thing is darkness. Would you please forgive me? So it restores fellowship. It reveals the severity of our sin. Number three, it reminds us of God's grace and the death of Jesus. To repent is to say, Jesus, thank you for dying for this, right? Do you remember kind of our, our motion here, our V down here? To get to the middle of that and say, oh, I'm asking for forgiveness because you've already died in my place for this thing. It actually reminds you of the good news of what Christ has done, right? It restores fellowship. It reveals the severity of sin. And it reminds you, right? John takes time multiple places in this short little passage to put the atoning sacrifice of Jesus at the center of your struggle with light and dark. It reminds yourself of the good news of the gospel, right? Because sin is like cataracts on our eyes. It dims our view and clouds our vision. And so repentance actually removes that. It helps us see more clearly and reminds us of God's grace in the death of Jesus. So why keep repenting after you're already forgiven? Because you desperately need to remember what Christ has done for you in a world that keeps lying to you about your own autonomy on one side and you being abandoned on the other side. Reminds you of God's grace in the death of Jesus. Number four, it removes shame. For you to just own it, to step into the light again, to step out of the shadows and the darkness, right? You can just see that imagery of darkness, right? It's where you hide is in the corner in the dark when you feel shame. 
And to move into the light actually removes that shame in really beautiful ways. I read Psalm 32 recently. It's a beautiful passage about the way repentance actually removes shame. He personifies it in a a really graphic way that you have felt this. This is Psalm 32. He says this, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. And then he says this, For when I kept silent, when I didn't confess, when I didn't repent, when I just held it in, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. What a graphic depiction of what shame does to you. When you feel like it's about you, and therefore it's utilitarian, and therefore you have to fix it, and therefore you are unlovable, and therefore you should be punished, and therefore you should hide and run away in the dark. All those lies of the evil one, when you confess, you step back into the light. Right, And the bones that have been wasted away, the groaning that's been there, this heavy hand is removed. This psalm has those little sailors, those little pauses, and one comes right after that, right? Your hand's heavy upon me. My strength is dried up as in the heat of summer. And that little sailor's like this. Ah. And then he says, and I acknowledged my sin to you, and I didn't cover my iniquity, right? I confessed it. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And then it ends with another sailor. Ah. Ah, the soul-crushing weight of shame is lifted through repentance. So, so why, why repent? Because it removes shame. It restores fellowship. It reveals the severity of sin. It reminds you of what God has done for you in Christ. It removes shame. And number five, it re-energizes you towards holiness. That's the whole point of chapter 2 of 1 John, right? That we hear the good news of the gospel, that we actually repent, changes us from the inside out so that we actually want to obey the commands of God. You know what it's like to feel distant from God because of your sin? You actually just want something else to soothe that, and so you wind up sinning more. How many times have you covered over shame with things that have added more shame? You've used anger and lust and you've bought things and you've overeaten and you drank too much and you, you pushed somebody away. You did all kinds of things just to make yourself feel better. But the bankruptcy of that actually leaves you more and more empty. It's like a mirage in a desert sin is. That to a thirsty person, they hallucinate that there's this oasis. And so you dip your cup into what you think is water and you put it into your mouth and you realize it's just sand. And rather than quenching your thirst, sin actually makes you more and more thirsty. It has the opposite of motivating you towards holiness. But repentance, remembering that God loves you, actually has a transforming effect in your heart and it re-energizes you towards holiness. 2 Corinthians 5 says that love actually motivates us. That's why it's the greatest commandment. If God's a relational God, then actually to walk with him in the light is to be in relationship with him that moves us towards his heart. Not not a flippant, I'm sorry, but actual real change. So, So why keep repenting? Well, the scriptures tell us to, for one, and you need to because you need to have your fellowship restored and reveal the severity of your sin on a regular basis. Remind yourself, this is not like a little bit of a vice that I'm entitled to late at night by myself because I feel lonely. This is death. 
It reveals that. It reminds you that Christ has died in your place. It removes your shame and it re-energizes you back towards the light where you can walk in holiness. Okay, so obviously then, why Lent? What are we doing? Hey man, what if we took some time as a people to reflect on that? What if we quieted our heart and uncluttered our heart through some sort of fast Rather than going to the other thing that you would normally go to to soothe yourself, what if you went towards God instead and you begin to cultivate a heart of repentance? Right? It's actually preparing our heart to receive the good news of what Christ did for us in his resurrection. And so, so Lent is this long season. It's 40 days minus Sundays beginning Ash Wednesday up until Easter. So you got like six weeks, which means you can have several bad days and God's still working your heart. It means you're not putting pressure on just one moment. You don't have to capitalize on just Easter Sunday. You can cultivate a heart of repentance over and over again. We'll talk more on Wednesday night at Ash Wednesday, but I would love for you to begin to consider, is there something you can turn away from that would declutter your heart? Is it social media? Is it stuff with food? Is there stuff with drink? Is there something you could say no to to declutter your heart so that you can cultivate a heart of repentance in this season? Because friends, you desperately need to do that. Not so that God would love you, but so that your communion with God can be restored. Because you wonder, does he love you? Is he close? And the darkness is so pervasive and it's so tempting and you run to it so fast. Let repentance do its work to actually clarify your heart and remind you of who God is so that you move back towards him. That's what Lent is about. So so actually I want to encourage you uh, this newsletter this week, well, I'll throw some, some resources your way, but I would love for you to consider reading through with me John Piper's book, 50 Reasons Why Jesus Came to Die. You can download a free PDF from Desiring God website. I'll put a link in the newsletter for you because this is what that'll do for us. It will put what Christ has done at the center of the table for us to feast upon in this season so you have a Christ-centered view of repentance. If this is what he did, then how do I respond to that? Or do you take some time to quiet your heart on a regular basis to, to remember so you can repent, so you can experience the light and the freedom and the grace and that refreshing that Acts 3 talks about. All right, and so part of that habit we're doing, part of the rehearsing, part of the kind of long view of cultivating a culture is taking communion as well. And some of you might be wondering, like, why, why I don't do like a long time of confession before communion? You're going like, dude, you're missing a major opportunity. It's all about confession. You just said that. So why don't you just like do that for us every time. And here's the reason why. I don't think communion is about getting yourself worthy to take communion. I think communion is about declaring that you're not worthy. I think it's about gratitude for what Christ has done. Surely confess whatever act of sin you have in your life because you can't say, God, thanks for loving me and hold on to the darkness. The light and darkness don't blend together like that. But communion is this celebration for what Christ has done to make your forgiveness possible. So we're going to take communion. I'm going to ask Matt and Claire to come back up and begin to play. If you didn't know we're taking communion, there's some tables in the back. You have time to go grab one. There's also, nope, just in the back. Uh, You can grab some of those. Um, There's a little wafer on the bottom, and there's a, a cup of juice on the top. And it's a symbol of this propitiation, this Christ dying in our place so that we could be forgiven and free. And it's for Christians who are trusting in Jesus. Those of you who aren't followers of Jesus, you hear me every week say this is actually not a meal for you. And I don't mean that to push you away. I actually mean it to clarify what you need most of Jesus is not a ritual. You need his grace and forgiveness for the very first time. That capital R 
repentance. So I would invite you to trust Christ for the first time. And I'll be up here at the front if you want to talk about that. But for followers of Jesus, uh, we're going to play and just kind of sing. Would you take time to remember his broken body and shed blood on your behalf and thank him for what he's done that made your repentance possible so that that relationship could be restored and renewed. Let me pray for us and then we'll take communion together. Jesus, we say thank you for who you are. Thanks for what you've done. Would you now speak to us through communion as we taste and remember the goodness of God in the sacrifice of Jesus. Minister to your people. And God, would you give us hearts to want to repent? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. for joining us online. Leeway Baptist Church exists to glorify God by making disciples of all nations. For more information about us and our ministry, please visit us at www.leewoodbaptist.com.